Then each bison is given a small RFID tag, which serves as their permanent ID, and it links them to computerized health records. Yeah, each gets its own username and passwords, but sometimes they forget their password <laughs> so that they can hit they can hit the button that says forgot password. They do have to do a, a two-point verification for for their account in the system, but the bison are figuring that out. Right. They're quick learners. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. The subject of today's episode is our country's national mammal, the bison. This magical animal no, wait, is... Wait, 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 not magical. It's majestic. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's... that's... Majestic makes more sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't think they're magical. Okay, all right, I'll I'll say that sentence again. This majestic animal is a symbol of our American identity and one of the greatest conservation success stories of all time. It's always a thrill to spot this iconic animal roaming throughout our public lands, and there are currently many national parks, state parks, and wildlife refuges where you can view them. We'll be talking about some of the lesser-known areas where bison have been brought back to the land where they once roamed. And share with you stories of how foresighted individuals and conservation groups saved the species from extinction. All about bison coming up next. All right, we have a lot to talk about today, but before we get started, I wanted to open with something fun that I came across, something that's, well, it's kind of trivial and irrelevant, but I thought it was fun. How will the listeners know that it's different than the other trivial and irrelevant stuff that we (laughs) will say during the rest of the episode? (laughs) Well, that might be an issue, you're right. (laughs) Okay, what is it, Karen? Okay, I'm going to read to you a grammatically correct sentence. Are you ready? As ready as I'm going to (laughs) be. Okay. Buffalo, 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 buffalo. That's just (laughs) stupid. (laughs) That's a real sentence. Is it? Yes. (laughs) So buffalo can be a noun and buffalo can be a verb. Yeah. It means to confuse or to fluster someone. Buffalo can also be a proper noun. It's a place, right? Buffalo, Buffalo, New York. York, Yes, where Teddy Roosevelt was sworn in as president. Exactly. So if you break it down, Buffalo, Buffalo. So the Buffalo from Buffalo, okay? Uh So Buffalo, Buffalo. And then the third Buffalo is the verb. They're buffaloing the Buffalo from Buffalo. So listen, buffalo, 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 buffalo. All right. So the four of you that are still listening, <laughs> we, have, we have a meter. We have a meter. It, it had the audience and then it just started dropping and was in free fall for a while. All right. Well, this transitions nicely into the next thing I wanted to talk about is why are they no longer called buffalo? Because as you know, they used to be called buffalo. It was it was the buffalo nickel, right? And buffalo soldiers. So Matt, you tell us. Bison's always been their real name. They got confused. Well, there was a time when a lot of Europeans were coming to America on hunting trips. And a lot of those wealthy Europeans 
also were going to Africa on hunting trips. And when they came over here and saw the bison, they were used to the water buffalo in Africa and they they just called them the same thing. And that's kind of how it got started. And, you know, a lot of people, including us, use bison and buffalo interchangeably, right? But... According to the Smithsonian National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute, buffalo and bison are two distinct animals, just as you said. So the true buffalo are the Cape buffalo and the water buffalo native to Africa and Asia, and bison are found in North America and Europe. All right. Well, I'm sure you'll correct me if I say buffalo instead of bison. (laughs) So anyway... Before we start our list of public lands where you can see bison, we wanted to share some details about the bison. Right, like where did our bison here in North America come from? They didn't just magically appear. They actually walked here, Karen, all the way from Asia to what is now Alaska, across a land bridge. Yes, they migrated several hundred thousand years ago. And the thing is, is the bison that came over all those hundreds of thousands of years ago were much larger than they are today. Uh, They have found fossil records that show that one prehistoric bison had horns measuring nine feet long from tip to tip. Wow, that's a big bison. How would you like to run across him in Yellowstone? I would not. (laughs) Everything was big back then. That's they, right. They had wolves the size of horses. Yes. Yeah, how did we how did we survive? Humans back then would just be cowering in caves. Like, look at that <laughs> buffalo. No, that's a bison. Oh, it's been going on for that long, has it? <laughs> yeah, and probably will continue until the end of time. All right, well, let's move on to the current day. Uh, Some good news for bison. They probably are not even aware of this, but uh, they recently got a $25 million boost. Yeah, I don't think they have awareness of self or the concept of money. (laughs) I don't think so either. But good for them anyway. Yes, the Interior Department has been working towards the ecological and cultural restoration of the species of bison. And now the effort is getting a huge financial lift with the Biden administration committing $25 million from the Inflation Reduction Act for a variety of projects and initiatives. Uh, and so the bison are going to help us reduce inflation? Is that what they're going to do? <laughs> you know, I, I think it was just worked into that particular bill. Now, these projects are going to range from establishing new bison herds and supporting bison transfers to tribes to improving the quality of grassland ecosystems, restoring native plant communities, and supporting prescribed fire efforts. That is a great update on the funding for bison, Karen. Yes, bison are trending right now. They they are trending. What's not to like about a bison? I know. And now everyone wants a bison herd in their particular area. And I think it's it's fantastic. I'd like a bison herd in my area. I know. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about that when we get to Antelope Island State Park. All right. All right. right, Karen, do you have any facts about bison? Yes. Let's talk about this uh, magnificent slash magical animal. It's the largest mammal in North America. Yeah, the adult male bison stands around six feet tall at the shoulder and can weigh up to 2,000 pounds. That is huge. Yeah, it is huge. And male bison are called bulls and female bison are called cows and are a little bit smaller than the bulls. And what's really amazing, even though they are huge, they can run fast. They can run up to 35 miles per hour. And you know what else I love? They can spin. <laughs> they, 
you know what? I think you're overreaching on your Animal Planet audition here. You're pulling, you're pulling out some facts just to, to wow the audience. Yeah, this, they spin quickly, Karen. They do. They can jump up to six feet vertically and seven feet horizontally. They're also strong swimmers and very agile for their size. Yeah, they they are amazing. Yeah. So what do they eat, Matt? They don't well, eat. They do not eat people. They don't eat people, but they will gore you if you get too close and you mess with them. Right now, bison primarily eat grasses. Uh, they eat weeds and leafy plants, and they typically forage for about nine to eleven hours a day. Who does that sound like? <laughs> <laughs> you. <laughs> no, if, if no. We're, if we're being honest, yeah. The average lifespan for a bison is 10 to 20 years, and a lot of them do live up to 20 years, and sometimes you'll see an old solitary male that's even older than that. We're talking about bison still? Still talking about bison. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, Karen, one thing about bison, they don't have great eyesight, but they can smell very well and hear. So their smell and hearing is acute. Yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. Now, we found this out early in our parks trip. I'm not sure. I think a ranger might have told us this. A bison's tail can tell you how they are feeling at the moment. So when a bison's tail is held straight up in the air, that means the bison is agitated and could charge at any moment. And a relaxed, like, swishing tail (laughs) means they're calm, less agitated, but, of course, still could charge at any moment. Yeah, they're unpredictable animals, and you really do need to treat them with respect, give them plenty of space, don't get too close to them. Right. I read that bison cause three times more injuries to humans in Yellowstone National Park than bears do. But one thing we should say about the tail thing is... The tail's going up. Yeah, the tail's going (laughs) up. It doesn't always mean that they're angry or upset, right? We've, We've seen this before. I remember one time we were... Hiking, we weren't super close to the bison, but um, tail went up, and uh, we thought they were going to charge. We were we were afraid. The tails are up. The tails are up. Yeah, yeah, but no, they were just um, they just had to relieve themselves. <laughs> so, so that is something that does happen. Yes, right. It doesn't always mean that they're upset, but uh, yeah, you got to you got to watch for the tails. You see a, a group of bison, and three or four tails go up. That's a warning sign. Yeah, and so one more thing about getting too close to the bison. We're going to talk about some public lands where you can see them. And it's interesting because every single public land has a different piece of advice about how far away you should stay. I have read 50 yards and 100 yards and all kinds of different measurements. But I guess the point is keep your distance. Yeah, and they when they charge, they can close that distance quickly. And people have been killed by bison. So it's not something to take lightly. You really do have to give these animals some respect. Yeah, we have seen really shocking videos on social media from mostly Yellowstone where where visitors don't understand that these are wild animals. And you see them going up right next to them. And it it scares me every time I see that because they're just so unpredictable what they might do. And of course, we've also seen the videos of when the bison charge people and they lower their head and they literally flip them up in the air. Literally 20 feet up in the air. Yeah, just uh, you know, keep your distance, be respectful of them and enjoy them from a distance. That's right. All right, Karen. So what happened to them? How did the bison almost go extinct? 
Well, you know, there were several contributing factors that all came together around the same time to kind of create this perfect storm, so to speak. So essentially, they were overhunted. The U.S. government knew that eliminating bison as a food source for Native Americans would mean they'd be more easily persuaded to move to reservations. The railroads also wanted to see the bison herds thinned to decrease the danger they posed to trains in the region. And professional hunters were happy to oblige both the government and the railroads because bison hides were valuable at the time for making commercial items such as robes and rugs. Right. Other factors in their demise included uh, the introduction of diseases from cattle, drought, and also um, competition for food from domestic livestock like horses and cows and sheep and that kind of thing. So it was many factors that caused the bison to drop in numbers from 30 to 50 million in 1800 to, to 1902, when there were fewer than 100 wild bison that roamed the Great Plains. Yeah, they had a real rough go of it. They did. But it's a success story, though. Well, it is. And we're going to be talking about uh, how the bison were saved from the brink of extinction a little bit later as we move on. But currently, about 31,000 bison live in publicly owned lands in the United States and Canada. The Department of the Interior manages about 10,000 bison, including 8,000 bison in 10 national park units, 1,600 bison in seven national wildlife refuges, and around 700 bison on Bureau of Land Management lands in Utah. Yeah, and another part of the success story is that across the U.S., there are 82 tribes now that manage a total of about 20,000 bison. So this is fantastic that they're on tribal lands, and and this has been growing actually quite a bit in the last few years. Uh, These animals are being transferred from reservation to reservation. Also, a lot of times the federal or the state or local governments that have bison herds, then when they have to cull them out, they offer them to Native Americans to help bolster their herd. So a lot of uh, sharing of bison back and forth. And that's a wonderful thing. You know, it used to be when some of these public lands had too many bison, sometimes they would have auctions and they would have hunts and things like that. But now I think more often than not, they are transferring them to Indian tribes. So that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. And the other other thing we should mention is that, you know, people wonder, like, are the bison still under pressure now, are they endangered? And, you know, we just talked about, you know, 30,000 in public lands and another 20,000 on tribal lands. Uh, There's also several hundred thousand bison across the United States that are raised by private entities. So as a species, they're sustainable at their numbers and and they're doing just fine. So Matt, I wanted to interrupt this um, programming for a minute to have a pop quiz. We haven't done that in a while. Okay. (laughs) Okay. What national park in Colorado has over 2,000 bison that are currently ranched within park boundaries on land owned by the Nature Conservancy? And I will give you an extra clue. This private inholding is currently not open to the public. So this is private. It's a private herd inside a national park boundary. Now you have a twenty five percent chance. Since of there's only this four right. national parks, yes, uh, national so. park, national park. <laughs> I'm rooting for you. <laughs> wow, I, I would suspect it's it's one of the national parks that has probably a bunch of land 
that's that's not around its main feature that I don't know about. Um, 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 um I am gonna guess Great Sand Dunes. Ding, 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 ding. That is correct. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know that. Why did we not know this when I we know. visited that park? Well, because it is off limits to the public, so you cannot see the herd, but there are 2,000 of them. And I saw this incredible picture of some bison in the foreground and then the great sand dunes rising up behind them. I tell you what, we're going to get into this in a minute, but this Nature Conservancy is doing a lot of partnerships with the National Park Service where they are bringing in bison. They are, in some cases, they have these private sections of land with bison, but they're doing a lot of work in partnership. Wow, that's a large herd. 2,000, I know. I'm not sure what the plan is for that. It would be wonderful if it were at some point open to the public. They should have a plan. They should have <laughs> they a plan. Should, they probably should, have a plan. You should they... not just have 2,000 bison <laughs> and have no plan. They just haven't told us the plan. Okay. All right. So talking about sheer numbers of bison and the best place to see them. You know, everyone thinks of Yellowstone and Yellowstone's bison population, and for good reason, because in 2021, the count was estimated at around 5,500 bison. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's the largest bison population on public lands, and they are also allowed to roam freely through Yellowstone National Park and in some nearby areas of Montana. And we should also mention that... Back in 2018, so back before COVID, we did a road trip, one of my favorite road trips of all time. We called it the Great American Bison Road Trip, and we did a podcast episode on this, number 13. Mm -hmm. It was a driving trip, and we drove from the Pacific Northwest, Seattle area where we live. We went to the National Bison Range in Montana. That's just north of Missoula. Mm -hmm. We went to Teddy Roosevelt National Park. Badlands National Park, over to Custer State Park in the Black Hills. We saw the bison at Wind Cave National Park, which is right adjacent to Custer. Uh, then we went to Bear Butte State Park. Saw the smallest bison herd on yes. public lands. <laughs> Nine of them there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bear Butte's just uh, north of Rapid City in South Dakota. Then we went over to Yellowstone and then Grand Teton. And that was a fantastic loop, just as a road trip itself, but we saw lots of places where there were public bison. That's right. It was a fantastic road trip. And so we are not going to talk about those places again today because you can all go back if you're interested and listen to episode 13. We're going to talk about a few new places that you can go to see bison. And these are a few historically significant places. You know, one note that we should say, Matt, is that one challenge of seeing bison in these public lands is that sometimes the bison are not in places that you are able to access. Yeah, they don't cooperate. <laughs> you go there, and we've we've even experienced this in those parks that I just mentioned mm -hmm. in our Great American Bison Road Trip. You know, the parks can't control where the bison go. And we had an example where we went to Teddy Roosevelt National Park. We went to the North Unit, and they have a good-sized herd up there. But the, the day we were there, we did not see one bison. We didn't. And there have been one or two times that we have driven through the Lamar Valley in Yellowstone, where you are almost always guaranteed to see bison, and we have not seen a single one. <laughs> yeah, they're constantly on the move. They are constantly grazing and constantly moving, so... 
Should we get started, Matt? I guess we've already gotten started. (laughs) Yes, we've already gotten started. But I'm interested, Karen, in the list you put together. And what's the first public land on the list that we're going to talk about? So we're going to go to Oklahoma, to the Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge. And this is run by U.S. Fish and Wildlife. We haven't been to the Wichita Mountains yet. In fact, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't even know Oklahoma had mountains. Yeah, the highest peak in the Wichita Mountains is around 2,500 feet. How did you know that? Uh, You're you're asking the host of the Geology Channel over here. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this refuge is located in southwest Oklahoma, just outside the Lawton-Fort Sill area. And this particular wildlife refuge preserves approximately 60,000 acres of mixed grass, prairie, and ancient granite mountains, freshwater lakes, and streams. Yeah, and it's best known for its roaming herds of bison, longhorn, and Rocky Mountain elk. And yeah, so I guess the Wichita Mountains are a great recreational area for people who like to fish or birdwatch, hike, camp, kayak. Yeah, so there's a lot to do there. So the Wichita Mountains was originally established as a forest preserve in 1901, and it was redesignated as a national game preserve in 1905. Now, we have mentioned in previous episodes, I know several times when we've talked about Wind Cave, that in 1905, the American Bison Society was formed and a breeding program started at the New York City Zoo. And President Teddy Roosevelt was one of the founding fathers of this group. Now, they donated 14 bison to Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota, and they sent them by train to Hot Springs, South Dakota, and then they took them by horse-drawn wagon to the park. Yeah, they lashed them to, they lashed (laughs) the crates to the wagons. You're never going to forget that I said that, are you? (laughs) Okay, so the same time that this is going on, Well, actually, two years later, in 1907, the Wichita Mountains received 15 bison from the New York Zoological Park and the American Bison Society to reestablish a Southern Plains herd. So they sent 15 bison, and that was the start of the roughly 650 bison that roam freely today in the refuge. And in fact, Wichita Mountains has the largest bison refuge managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So a lot of these bison you're saying in the West, are they're all New Yorkers. Well, that's right. <laughs> they, they make them in New York and then they send them on out to the West. Yes, they were breeding them there and then they, they shipped them on the train. Yeah. Yeah, so the uh, Wichita Wildlife Refuge gets about 1.7 million visitors each year. And one of the primary attractions for the visitors is the opportunity to see free ranging bison. I know. I want to go there now. The pictures I've seen look beautiful. Yeah, let's go. And and it's not in Wichita. It is not in Wichita, Kansas, which is what we think coming from Kansas. When we hear Wichita, we think Kansas. This is Oklahoma. But we are moving to Kansas now. We're going to talk about the Tall Grass Prairie National Preserve. And this is a unique partnership between the Nature Conservancy and the National Park Service, as I mentioned before. Yes, this preserve is about a two-hour drive west of the Kansas City area, and we visited it for the first time a couple years ago when we were back there visiting family. One of the things that goes hand-in-hand with bringing back bison to where they once roamed is bringing back our prairies. 
Now, to put this in context, the Tallgrass Prairie once covered 170 million acres of North America, but within a generation, most of it had been transformed into farms and cities and towns. And today, less than 4% remains intact. And most of this is in the Kansas Flint Hills. So this Tallgrass Prairie was established in 1996, and it protects a significant remnant of the vast tall grass prairie ecosystem. And so not only are they bringing back bison, but they're also bringing back the tall grass prairie. And in 2009, after a 150-year absence, the NPS and the Nature Conservancy brought 13 bison to the preserve, and those came from Wind Cave National Park. So they sent some of the New Yorkers over there. <laughs> sent, sent some of the well, New the Yorkers, ancestors to, that, of the New Yorkers, to Kansas. Yeah. Right now, the bison herd is roughly about ninety animals. Yeah, the preserve has about eleven thousand acres, and uh, visitors can experience the prairie through about forty miles of prairie hiking trails. The trails are open twenty four hours daily, mm-hmm. and the visitor center and the historic buildings they're open daily only closed on major holidays that's right now when we were going to visit we wanted to do a hike so you know 40 miles of trails that's a lot we wanted to hike where the bison were and they tell you right off the bat that the bison reside in the windmill pasture and the west traps pasture so this particular preserve says to allow 125 yards between you and the bison. That's a lot. That's more than a football field. That is, yes, it is. That's 25 <laughs> yards further than a, than a football field. We actually hiked in that area when we visited. And I remember we hiked for quite a ways and didn't see any bison. And we thought, okay, well, this is, this is going to be one of those visits, right? Where you go to see the bison and they, they're hiding somewhere. But then we found them, and they were congregated right on the trail, which was kind of cool because we stopped 126 yards away. <laughs> we actually did. I was a little scared. I think all 90 were right there. Yeah, yeah, and just and watched them for a long, long time. And that was interesting because, like I said before, bison, even though it kind of looks like they're in a herd and they're all in one spot, if you watch them, they're always moving just a little bit. And if you watch them for long enough, even like 10, 15 minutes, they can move quite a distance. So we just stood there watching them, knowing that they might mosey on and we could hike a little bit more. But they didn't. They did not mosey off the trail. So yeah, we waited and watched them. And we were hoping that if they moved far enough off the trail, we could continue our hike because we weren't ready to turn around yet. But we waited and waited and they were still a huge amount of them were still on the trail. So after a while, we just uh, turned around and went back. But it it was fun to see. It was. I think that was in the spring, and there were a lot of babies. And I think the babies were, some of them were napping, and it was harder to get the babies to get up and move with the herd. So they kind of all stood in one spot. Yes. And of course, when there are babies involved, the mothers are even more anxious about having any strange objects slash people around. So you have to be especially careful about getting too close when there are little babies there. Yeah. And watch for tails up. Yes, definitely. This episode is sponsored in part by Rumpel. 
Rumpel is introducing the world to better blankets with their full line of durable, premium, ultra-warm outdoor blankets and gear. We never leave home without them. The original puffy blanket is made using recycled polyester and insulation that packs down small in its own bag for easy storage and grab-and-go adventures. I like them because Rumpel pairs durable 20D ripstop nylon with a DWR finish that's water, stain, and odor resistant. But when you do spill coffee on yours, I can throw it in the washing machine when we get home and it's good as new. Rumpel blankets are the best way to stay cozy and warm on any adventure. Whether you're traveling across the country or picnicking at your local park, Rumpel has you covered, literally. Shop their line of over 140 prints and designs, including their National Park Collection, at rumple.com forward slash Bob and Sue, and use the code Bob and Sue for 10% off your first order. That's R-U-M-P-L dot com slash Bob and Sue. Okay, Karen, what's our next uh, public land? Okay, moving on to Antelope Island State Park in Utah. Uh, now, this is on the south end of the Great Salt Lake. It's the largest island in the lake, and it's a about a 28,000-acre refuge for huge amounts of wildlife, including about 600 to 700 bison. Yeah, and that's a good-sized herd. The bison there were introduced to Antelope Island back in 1893, And around that time, the conservationists around the country began to take steps to save the bison from extinction, right? And two Utahns were instrumental in this effort. So together, William Glassman and John Dooley brought bison to Antelope Island. That's right. They brought four bulls, four cows, and four calves, and they boated them over to the island. Um, And these 12 animals provided the foundation for what has grown into one of the oldest and largest publicly owned herds of bison in the nation. Um, Now, we visited Antelope Island one early November weekend to see the annual bison auction. Right. What they do in a lot of these public lands, they they have to do this. If they have limited amount of space for the bison to to live, they round them up every year. And depending on the public land, a lot of times they have to cull the herd. Antelope Island is one of these cases where they feel like the island can only support about six to 700 animals. There's no predators on the island. So the herd's growing pretty fast. Uh, They cull them out. They auction off Uh, some of those bison. So I think one weekend they do the roundup uh, and that's pretty stressful thing on the bison. They let them rest for a couple weeks and then uh, a couple weekends later they do an auction. And what they're doing when they round up the entire herd of bison, the horse riders round up the herd and they drive them into a holding corral and let the bison rest for a week. Then the animals are sorted and separated one at a time and they receive vaccinations. They get individual health screenings that include checks for pregnancies and parasites and other health concerns. Then each bison is given a small RFID tag, which serves as their permanent ID, and it links them to computerized health records. Yeah, each gets its own username and passwords, but 
sometimes they forget their password and so that they can hit they can hit the button that says forgot password they do have to do a, a two point verification for for their account in the system but the bison are figuring that out right they're quick learners um, so once they're checked then they're either released back onto the island or they're kept in a corral where they're later sold at the auction so we went we didn't go to the roundup part but we went to the auction part and it was great fun oh my goodness i i have a little trailer it's like a four foot by eight foot trailer and i wish i had that trailer with us when we were at that park because i would absolutely bought one (laughs) of the little ones and put it in back and driven it home. <laughs> well, you say that, but we were chatting with one of the uh, rangers at the auction, and I think you floated that idea by him, and he was um, explaining to you how we would need a very special fence in our backyard to contain this bison once the bison got to be 2,000 pounds. <laughs> right. He was laughing at me while at the same time giving me actual advice about how to do this if I really had my mind set on it about uh, how you have to fortify the fence posts and what kind of wire to use and and he said you know these they grow pretty fast which you know i'll worry about that later we got (laughs) we got to get one of these little ones home and and put it in our backyard but uh, no we we never did that no we didn't but what was so cool about this is that they are in pens outdoors and and there are aisles you know they're in rows so you can walk up and down the aisles and look at the bison and you can get right up close to the bison and never before have we ever been able to be that close and never again will we be able to be that close yeah unless you're at a zoo i mean you're not supposed to be that close to bison but you know here's a rare situation where they're already in pens uh, they're there for the public to look at them and people who might bid on them at auction. And so you're able to stand two, three feet away from these huge animals. And of course, there's this protective fence between you and them. Uh, and, and that's a rare opportunity to get that close to these incredible animals. Mm-hmm. If you ever get a chance to go, we would highly recommend it. You know, this is just right outside of Salt Lake City. And I know a lot of you fly in and out of Salt Lake City to go to the Utah Park. So Antelope Island is a great visit unto itself, even if you're not there during the roundup or the auction. That's right. Okay, let's go to our next public land, which is Fort Niobrara. National Wildlife Refuge in Nebraska. This is in Valentine, Nebraska, which is very close to the South Dakota border. It's only about two hours from Badlands National Park. Right. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife manage this public land. It's actually a beautiful park or piece of public land. It is gorgeous because the Niobrara River runs through it, which is another source of recreation we'll talk about in a minute. But uh, this refuge is open year-round during daylight hours. It has a nice visitor center that's open in the summer, Memorial Day through Labor Day. And we were just there last May. That's right. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of uh, adjacent public lands. Uh, Don't confuse this with Niobrara State Park. But this particular wildlife refuge, it has about 19,000 acres of protected land, and it has a herd of 350 bison. Yes, and just a quick history on this. The Fort Niobrara Military Reservation was established in 1879 to keep 
peace between the settlers and the Sioux Indians and to control the cattle rustlers and horse thieves in the area. Now, the army closed the fort in 1906, but used it to supply fresh horses for the cavalry until 1911. And in the early 1900s, as President Theodore Roosevelt and private conservation organizations like the American Bison Society were becoming increasingly concerned with the exploitation of wildlife, an executive order was signed in 1912 establishing Fort Niobrara as a preserve and breeding ground for native birds. (laughs) Not bison, birds. But later that year, the purpose was expanded to include the conservation of bison and elk hearts. I could add one last piece of information to this if I'm allowed to speak during your hist- <laughs> History Channel episode. Is that I'm no- course, normally Matt. not allowed to speak. Oh, I always uh, welcome you. Okay. Welcome. <laughs> I'd like to add, though, that the bison were introduced to Fort Niobrara National Wildlife Refuge in 1913. Mm-hmm. And these animals came from a small private herd owned by a farmer in Nebraska. Back then, at that turn of the century, there were farmers and ranchers who were trying to save the bison on their own. And they had very small herds on their land that they were just raising and taking care of. And I think that's a great story. Uh, Private citizens were taking it upon themselves to try to help the species survive. Exactly. Yeah. Now, one of the cool things about our visit last year was because we went in May, we saw lots of baby bison. Yeah, they're called calves. Yes, yeah. they're also called red dogs. <laughs> they're called red dogs because they're red. Yeah, and I, we were surprised as we drove through the park how close they were to the road, and we were able to stop, and, and the mamas just weren't terribly bothered by the fact that our car was just parked there amongst the herd. Right. We had some incredible bison sightings because they were all right by the road, and I swear we were the only people in the park, in the preserve. Yeah. yeah. We're the only car. Now, one more thing I wanted to mention about babies is that most bison calves are born between mid-April and the end of June, and they weigh about 30 to 70 pounds at birth. A 70-pounder. I know. That's a big one. That's a big baby. Yeah. And do did you know, Matt, that within three or four hours of birth, they are up walking and joining the herd? I believe that, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they stay by their mama. Well, well, not not there because there's no predators in this particular preserve. But in the wild, bison typically run when they sense danger, but not when calves are in the herd. What they do is when predators approach without warning, bison form a circle of protection. The cows form a ring around the young, and the bulls form an outer ring surrounding the cows. I love that. Okay, one really fun thing to do there that we didn't know about until we actually got there. The National Park Service has designated the Neobrara River as a national wild and scenic river. And there are a lot of outfitters there in Valentine, Nebraska, that rent canoes and kayaks and tubes for people to float down the river. Yeah, I guess that's the thing to do in that particular park is is float the river. And it'd be a great spot for it because I'm sure in the summertime, it gets pretty warm there. What, what would be better than being able to float down a wild and scenic river. I know. And there is even an NPS visitor center right there in Valentine. We stopped in and got some information from the ranger about doing this. So next time. Yeah. Okay. 
So, Karen, what is our next public land? Okay, moving on to, we had mentioned this before as as a place we visited on the Great American Bison Road Trip. This is the National Bison Range, which is in Montana in the center of the 1,250,000 acre Flathead Indian Reservation. Yes, it consists of about 19,000 acres and it has around 350 bison. Okay, a quick history. When the federal government established the National Bison Range back in 1908, they had good intentions of saving the species, but the way they went about it wasn't good. President Roosevelt signed legislation to form the National Bison Range by appropriating 18,000 acres out of the Flathead Reservation. Back in 1885, in the Hellgate Treaty, the United States promised that the Flathead Reservation would forever be the tribe's permanent homeland. And the tribe had no say about the National Bison Range being established on their land, and the compensation for the land was meager. Later, in 1971, a court of claims ruled the appropriation was unconstitutional, but by then it was too late to change the course of history. And did the original bison come from the American Bison Society? No. Ironically, they came from a free-ranging reservation herd that was started by tribal members in the 1800s when the Plains bison were near extinction. But there was a big change in 2020 in an effort to make things right with the tribes. Yes. Congress restored the bison range to federal trust ownership for the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes so that their natural resource managers can take over as stewards of the range's buffalo, wildlife, and land. They're working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to transition from federal to tribal management. And now the new name, it's called the Bison Range. They have dropped the word national from it. I always love visiting this place. A beautiful piece of land. And there are two scenic drives that take you through the range depending on the season. The primary drive is Red Sleep Drive, about a 19-mile loop that goes up and over Red Sleep Mountain. And it's only open during the summer, roughly May to October. And it has a couple of walking trails along that road. So visitors taking this road can usually see scenic views of the valley. Uh, There's a possibility of spotting bears. It will take you between one and two hours to drive the 19 miles. You go up fairly high in elevation. It seems like the trail we did was at maybe the highest point. And we parked and we got out and walked. It wasn't far. Probably the whole thing there and back was a mile. But I do remember we took our bear spray <laughs> because I was a little nervous about what if we encountered a bear on the trail, which we didn't. Right. We also didn't see bison up there, but we saw them on the lower scenic drive. Yeah, the second drive is Prairie Drive, which is on the lower half of the Red Sleep Drive loop. And that part of the drive is open all year round. And it's about a 14-mile drive that goes out to a turnaround and then comes back. So it's an out-and-back drive. And that really, I think, is the best place to spot bison. Uh, oftentimes, it, you know, that drive goes right by Mission Creek there. A lot of times they come out of the highlands to come down to the uh, creek. Yeah, that's kind of your best chance to see them. Right. We've been to this um, range probably four or five times. And about half the time, we've had good bison sightings there right by the road. But I know at least twice we've driven through and did not see a single bison. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's an area right in the center of this range. And if they have decided that particular day that 
They're going to hang out in the middle of the range. You might not see them by the road. But this is a good stop for anyone who is driving up to Glacier National Park. Uh, it's not too far south of there. So we'd recommend stopping there. And one more thing we wanted to mention that's very cool about the bison range is that this was the home of a rare white bison called Big Medicine, who lived his life there from 1933 to 1959. Yeah, and white bison are very rare. They, they occur about one in every 10 million buffalo, right? So it's it's kind of a rare thing. And for this particular animal, back in the 30s through the 50s, right, tribal members visited him to pray and held him in high esteem. Right. He was considered very sacred. Um, now, upon Big Medicine's death, the state's museum stuffed him. Is that the appropriate word? Yeah, Mounted yeah, him, stuffed it, him. Yeah. His whole body, not just his head. Or yeah, am but, I saying that right? That yeah, sounds strange. Yeah, no, they, okay. they stuffed the whole body. The whole body. And he is permanently preserved and displayed in the um, museum in Helena. And a few years ago, we stopped by to visit uh, Big Medicine. Right. And, and Big Medicine's nickname was Whitey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we went to the the state capitol in Montana to look for Whitey. We knew which building he was in. We went into the first floor and all we said was, where's Whitey? They just pointed (laughs) upstairs to to where he was and they they knew exactly what we were talking about. Yes. I have to say though, um, no one else was there visiting him. He seemed lonely. I think that now that this bison range has been transferred to the tribes, I think that they should move Whitey back to the visitor center. There's a nice visitor center there in the bison range. Yeah, they, and they give him a good scrubbing down. He was more yellowy when we saw him. <laughs> well, he's old. Yeah, yeah he is old. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's been there since 1959. Yeah, so I don't know, maybe maybe we'll send him back to the range. They should do that. that. That's the perfect place for him to live. Okay, so Karen, let's talk about one of the more bizarre locations where bison live today. Yeah, I just wanted to mention this briefly because it is so strange. And this is Catalina Island off the coast of California. So back in 1924... 14 bison were brought to the island as part of a movie set for the Zane Gray film, The Vanishing American. And when the movie people then vanished, when the filming was over, the bison were left on the island and their descendants uh, still roam the island. At one point, the herd grew to as many as 600. So they just left the bison? They just, just left like, the we're bison. Done. I know. That's I know. a wrap. We got the movie in the cans. They packed up their <laughs> filming equipment and all the actors. He just left. And, yeah, and, and I heard when I was doing research, I heard that the bison didn't even make it into the movie. Like they, they cut whatever clips there were of the bison. So yeah, they have this home on Catalina Island. Now currently, the Catalina Island Conservancy maintains this herd. It's numbered at about 150 bison. Uh, in order to protect both the herd and the island's landscape. Yeah, so they have to manage that herd. I yes. Mean, mm-hmm. Again, without any predators, the, a herd can grow pretty quick. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, uh, what else? What else we got, Karen? Okay, our last area we wanted to talk about is Caprock Canyons State Park in the Panhandle of Texas. Now, this is southeast of Amarillo. It's got about 14,000 acres. And Karen, they have about 150 bison. Yes. And I saved this for last because it's my favorite story. Are you going to cry? I I might. I cried. I cried when I was typing it. All right. 
All right. So as we said, towards the end of the great bison slaughter, there were a handful of people around the country who were worried about the fate of the bison, and they began the difficult task of saving them. These people took on the care of orphaned calves and started their own herds. And two of them were Charles and Marianne Goodnight. Goodnight or goodnight. I'm not sure how when your last name is goodnight, you I, pronounce that. But No clue. Okay. So the story starts back in 1872. The Santa Fe Railroad ran out of money and laid off hundreds of workers. And lured by the prospect of easy money, these young men then headed to Kansas, and many of them became buffalo hunters. Within a year, the herd in Kansas had almost been wiped out, and the hunters set their sights on the southern herd in the Texas panhandle. So in the winter of 1874, Mary Ann Goodnight heard the relentless gunfire as scores of buffalo hunters slaughtered the animals. At night, she heard the cries of the bison calves whose whose mothers had been killed. So the Goodnights started rescuing the orphan calves. Charles gave Mary Ann 10,000 acres for her bison herd, and they founded the Goodnight Buffalo Ranch. Can we go back to the, he just gave her 10,000 acres? Yeah, what a nice husband. Put your rescued calves over there. Right. There's so much to love about this story. It's so good. It's enough to make you cry. I know. I know. But after the good knights died in the late 1920s, the bison were left on their own, and they roamed wild in the canyons and plains of the nearby J.A. Ranch, where Charles Goodnight had formed this partnership with John Adair in 1882. So following the deaths of the good knights, this herd faded from public awareness until 1994. 70 years later? Yes. They just were roaming around. Yes, exactly. (laughs) They absolutely were. And in 1994, Wolfgang Frey, a German and a member of the World Wildlife Fund, told Texas officials about the existence of the bison. And this ignited local, state, and international interest in the herd of about 50 bison. So there's 50 bison left. So in 1996, DNA samples from the bison revealed their DNA was different from any other bison in the world. Genetic testing by the Texas Park and Wildlife Department discovered a rare genetic marker revealing that this herd was perhaps the last remaining group of Southern Plains bison. How cool is that? Yeah, yeah, the 50 that were left. Right. So in the late 1990s, the current JA ranch owner donated the herd to Texas Park and Wildlife and gave them permission to capture the herd, which at that point had dwindled to about 36. And so in the winter of 1997-98, they rounded them up and they were transferred 50 miles to Caprock Canyon State Park, where the herd historically roamed. Yeah, so that's kind of a long story there, Karen. <laughs> I'm not finished yet, but oh, I'm just taking a breather. <laughs> okay, all right. You know, I'd like to say while you're resting uh-huh, up and, uh-huh. and composing yourself, um, the herd is now the official bison herd of the state of Texas. The Goodnight Herd and four other herds provided the foundation stock for virtually all bison in North America today. Did you know that, Karen? I did know that. You know, had it not been for the good nights, and particularly Mrs. Goodnight, mm-hmm. I have to say. Mm-hmm. Marianne? Yeah, Marianne, yes. The southern herd 
would have disappeared 150 years ago. Yes, and to honor them, the home of the Goodnights is now the Charles and Marianne Goodnight Ranch State Historic Site. There's a visitor and education center and a statue of Marianne with a baby bison. You want to go there, don't you? Of course. All right, and in closing out uh, their story, I wanted to mention a side story because it kind of ties everything together. Wait, 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 wait. This is a history channel within a history channel? (laughs) Is that what this is? (laughs) The very last one, I promise. In 1994, when the state was considering taking over the herd, Texas Parks and Wildlife Executive Director Andrew Sampson wanted to see what he was getting into. The problem was the J.A. Ranch covered more than a million acres, and no one was sure exactly where the bison were. Wait, this guy has a ranch that has a million acres? Yeah, well, what is it they say? Everything's bigger in Texas? That would be like looking for a needle in a haystack. Definitely. So he took the plane that belongs to the Texas Parks and Wildlife to search for them by air. So that, you know, they're flying around in the plane and there's one point as they're looking for them, they came up over a rise and there the bison were. And because of the noise of the plane, the bison took off running all of them like a stampede. And he said it was one of the most thrilling sights he had ever seen in his life. That stuck with me because that day for him, as the bison are thundering across the plains, he got to witness a free-ranging bison herd stampeding through the wilderness of the Texas panhandle, just like they did hundreds of years ago, back when it was part of the wild, wild west. He probably felt the same way we did on one of our trips through Yellowstone, and, and this was just an amazing sight. As we were driving through the park, we saw a few bison running off in the distance, so we pulled off the road and got out of the truck. And... Bison started coming out of the woods kind of towards the river, but they were moving pretty fast and they just kept coming and kept coming and they got closer to the river. And finally, I don't know how many there were, maybe 100, 200. They all started crossing the river at the same time. It it was an incredible sight. These bison running out of the woods, coming down to the river, swimming across the river. I mean, that... That was a scene out of the wild, wild west. It was, and that happened to be the last day of our great American bison road trip. And it was such a fitting ending to see that because it does take you away from from the modern day. And it puts you back into a place that we've only seen in movies. And I don't know, it made us feel like we were witnessing something very, very, very special. Yeah, and that's what is so great about America's public lands, in particular our national parks, is we still have these protected places where these scenes can be witnessed by by people, whether you're just passing through on a vacation or spending time in the park. You know, it really is fantastic that we've set aside and protected these lands so we can all from time to time, have these experiences. So we would encourage all of you to plan your own great American bison road trip and see not just the herds of bison, but also our prairies and our grasslands, the way they looked back when the buffalo roamed. Bison, not buffalo. Oh, gosh. Okay. Bison. Now you know how I feel. (laughs) All right. Thanks to all of you who are still with us, both of you. Thank you. (laughs) After a record-setting number of History Channel segments and uh, an entomology exercise in the word buffalo. Etymology, I think, is the word you mean. That's correct, Karen. I was just 
making sure you were still awake and didn't think we were studying bugs. <laughs> Would this be a bad time to ask listeners to leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think it would be. All right, then. For all of you who are supporting us over on Patreon, we recently released a new episode about travel-related gear that we found over the last year or so that has really made a difference on our road trips. As always, we appreciate all of your support. Yeah, we'll put a link to our Patreon account in our show notes. And if any of you would like to sign up, it's only $5 a month. And you'll get access to bonus content, both videos and audios, that we create exclusively for patrons. That's right. And we will be back next week with our monthly mailbag episode, which I think indeed will be magical. It's going to be a magical mailbag? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>